John chapter 4. Jesus was speaking unto this woman at the well. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture. In John 4, 13, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up unto everlasting life. We use this verse a lot to draw people to the Lord and tell them about salvation, but it only applies when you're getting saved. Once you get saved, you're supposed to be hungry and thirsty all the time. Don't shout me down for preaching good. You know, the truth is, I'm hungry, but it's like, I know my wife hates me using these comparisons. It's, she feels like it cheapens the Lord somehow or another. But it's like popcorn. I can eat a full meal, be totally full, and I can always have room for more popcorn. I just love popcorn. I never get enough. I'm always hungry for popcorn, but I'm not ever starved. Amen. I'm always hungry for more of the Lord. Man, when we were singing to know you and to know you more, that's one of my favorite songs. We we start my program with that. I am hungry for the things of the Lord, but not because I'm starved. I'm full, but I'm just a glutton. I just want more, amen. You can never tap all of the reserves of the Lord. I stay hungry for the things of the Lord, but not because I'm depleted, amen. Man, I've tasted of the Lord, and and it's a well of living water springing up. I hadn't been thirsty, amen. Praise God. Look over in the seventh chapter of the book of John. In verse 34, Jesus saith, I mean, they said unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Verse 35, it says, and Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. This is John 6. Why did you turn to John 7? You're supposed to be led of the Holy Ghost. John chapter 7, verse 34. Then said they unto him, John 6, 34. I'm headed to John 7. I'm thinking ahead, praise God. John 6, 34. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. Jesus saith unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. You know, that's what happens when you get born again. Man, God satisfies you. God gives you enough forever. Not just enough to last you through a day or two of being born again, and then you go back to being hungry and thirsty again. In John chapter 7, in verse 37, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Man, this is salvation. This is normal Christian living, amen. We're supposed to be full of the joy of the Lord. John chapter 10, verse 10, says, The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We use that verse a lot to draw people to the Lord. And then once they come to the Lord, we use this same verse to make them discontent. Are you living in an abundant life? Are you really full? Amen. Turn around and use the same thing that was something to attract people to the Lord as a club to beat them with. We do this to ourselves. But you know, the truth is that, man, when you get born again, God fills you with himself. And we have this everlasting life, and we should never hunger. We should never thirst again, except for just more of what we've already got. But we should never, once again, just identify with being empty and depleted and, and discontent and dissatisfied. That's the way I look at it. I know some people disagree. One of the scriptures I was using last night is Philippians 4.11, where Paul said, I learned to be content. It's not normal. It's not natural. If you're walking in the flesh, if you're just walking in yourself... And looking at things from a human standpoint, I guarantee you there's always something to be discontented with. But you can learn to be content. Look at another passage on this in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You know, the book of Ecclesiastes, I really believe it's supposed to be in the Bible, but I struggle with it. And I hadn't totally understood. The way I've come to grips with the book of Ecclesiastes is just to look at it this way, that this is a guy who was given all of this wisdom, and God blessed him more than any other person. But he says over here in the first chapter, um, well, I know I'm going to read out of the second chapter, but in the first chapter as he's introducing it, he basically just talks about that he decided to give himself unto folly. He said, I decided that I would just pursue folly and see what it takes to really satisfy a person. And to me, the book of Ecclesiastes 
is just a man looking for joy, peace, happiness, satisfaction in everything physical, natural that could possibly be searched for. And he basically comes to some of the most negative conclusions in all of the Bible. But what he's doing is basically expressing the futility of finding joy, peace, happiness in anything other than God. And so there's a lot of negative things here that if it were taken as Scripture, as this is God's mind on the thing, could really confuse you. But if you look at it as this is a man just in, in uh, himself trying to find peace, happiness, and fulfillment. And if you look at these statements that way, well, then what it does is show you the futility of ever trying to be satisfied in any other way except through Jesus. In Ecclesiastes chapter 2, let's look in verse um, 22. It says, For what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows and his Travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. Notice the terminology in this 24th verse. He says that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. It just does not happen naturally. You have to make a decision. You have to commit yourself to a state of being that says, man, I will rejoice. This is the day that the Lord hath made. I will rejoice in it. Bless the Lord, O my soul. You have to tell your soul to bless the Lord. It says in Psalms 103, and forget not all of his benefits. You know why he told you not to forget his benefits? Because you will forget his benefits if you don't make a decision to do it. You have to make your soul enjoy good in the labor that God has given you. And he says, this is from the Lord. I believe that's significant because most of the stuff he came to the conclusions in Ecclesiastes was not from the Lord. Most of his conclusions were just like, man, there's no purpose. It's vanity, vanity. All is vanity. Thus saith the preacher. Man, he was really bummed out. And he said in the next verse here, he says, for who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? Basically what he's saying is Solomon was the richest person that ever lived or ever will live on the face of the earth. You know, I've looked over in uh, Chronicles, and David gave out of the royal treasuries $250 billion to the work of the house of the Lord. And then out of his own personal treasuries, First Chronicles 29, he gave a $2.5 billion offering out of his personal bank account. This guy had a little bit of money, and yet Solomon was greater. There's no telling what he had. It says that it made silver as nothing. They threw it on the streets as stones. It was just like a rock. Threw silver out on the street because it wasn't accounted for anything in the days of Solomon. This guy was so blessed. Man, he had wealth. He had riches. He indulged himself. Had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's unbelievable. Did you know if you visited one of your wives or concubines every day, it'd take you three and a half years to make the rounds. It's hard to believe this guy was the smartest man that ever lived. But you know what he did? He indulged himself. He didn't withhold anything. A thousand women in his life... And he says it's vanity, all's vanity. That wasn't where it was at. He had wealth, he had things. He says, who can hasten unto more than I? In other words, who could indulge themselves? He says, I have pursued it to the max. Nobody, nobody will ever be able to pursue pleasure the way I did. And he says, pleasure's not where it's at. He says, you have to just, in, you just have to make your soul enjoy Many of us think if I just had a bigger house, if I had more of this, if I had a different wife, a different husband then everything would be different. But you know what? You have to make yourself enjoy where you are. You know, when it comes to husband-wife relationships, it's, it's amazing to me. I've done a lot of thinking about this, and we're one of the few generations that has been able to pick your mate. You know, this is a relatively new thing. Up until just 100 years or so ago, I mean, uh, marriages were arranged many times. They were picked, you know, from birth, and uh, there was a dowry exchanged, and you were made to marry a certain person. They didn't have the choices that we have, and yet did you know that those marriages lasted better than most of our marriages? We have this thing about, man, I just am not made for this person. They aren't the right fit, and we just throw them away like a used cup and go get another one, you know, and things like this. The truth is, 
you can just literally arrange marriages from birth, put people together, and if they're of a mind to make it work, they can make it work. You can become satisfied with your mate. But we have this thing that, man, the first time they do something wrong, I think I've married the wrong one. We become discontent, dissatisfied, and it causes a lot of problems. Man, it's not that way at all. Solomon, he indulged himself, and yet he didn't find satisfaction. He finally came to the conclusion, you have to make yourself enjoy good and find good in all of your labor. It's a choice. Paul said the same thing. I have learned in whatsoever state I'm in therein to be content. Amen? When you teach along these lines, one of the things that always come up, I mentioned this last night, is people say, but what about ambition? Man, if a person becomes content with where they are, what's ever going to motivate them to go on? Well, I believe that there's godly motivation and there's carnal motivation. And they're similar in a lot of ways, and yet there's some stark differences between them. So I just made, this is total andeology. I can't give you a scripture and a verse for this. But this, I made six things here that are, are distinct contrasts between godly ambition and carnal ambition. And we're just going to run through these real quickly. But the number one thing that I was thinking of is that carnal ambition is always selfish. It's always promote, promoting yourself. It's to advance yourself, whereas a godly type of ambition is not based on, on selfishness at all. The reason that we should desire to advance the kingdom and to have big churches and to minister to people and stuff is not for ego, not for self. Amen. We shouldn't find our identity in what we have accomplished, but our identity should be 100% in the Lord Jesus Christ and not in our accomplishments. Amen. You'll find people that are driven by carnal ambition are in it because their worth is tied to their accomplishments. It's selfish. And conversely, you can look at it this way. A person who is feeling like a failure because they haven't accomplished something, that's a sure sign that you are into a carnal, selfish type of ambition. Because if your heart is right and if your focus is correct, it really doesn't matter to you whether you succeed or not. Your worth is found in the Lord Jesus. You know, I love the Lord and I had a wonderful relationship with God before I ever knew I was going to be a minister. Man, I just loved the Lord. I had a wonderful time. And, it, and I didn't have to accomplish something to feel loved and to have joy and peace and be satisfied because I was insatisfied in what Jesus had done for me. But then you become a minister and you start setting goals, which I guarantee you, if you are a minister in here worth your salt, every one of you has got a vision, every one of you has got a goal, and those things, if you aren't careful, will become something that just beats you to death. And if you fail to reach those goals and to attain, then you start feeling failure. You know what the root cause of all of this is? Just selfishness. The truth is that, man, you shouldn't have an agenda for yourself. The reason I want to do certain things is because I feel God's led me to do it. And in God's timing, it's going to come to pass. And praise God, if it works, fine. If it doesn't, fine. You can see this in the godly people that were in the Bible. You can see a constant trait. Moses at one time was very self-centered. God gave him the plan, I mean, gave him the goal of what was going to happen, and Moses went out and tried to accomplish it in his own self and killed an Egyptian and stuff, and then he fled because the guy was self-centered. He had fear in it. But you know what? When he came back after four years in the wilderness, Moses came to a place to where, man, when a people came out against him, his own brother and sister, and criticized him for his marriage, Moses, instead of taking it personally and think, look what they've said about me, God, I've got rights, Moses fell on his face and interceded for them. And it says there in Numbers 12, 3 in parentheses, now Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth. Do you know a man who was really meek was the one that God used probably the greatest in all the Old Testament? That man, he wasn't in it for himself. When people criticized him, he fell down and prayed for them because he knew that they were in big trouble. He was secure. Do you know that a sign of being self-centered into self-ambition is insecurity? If you see somebody else prospering and if it rattles your cage and makes you feel like, why, God, what's happening to me? Why aren't I prospering? There's a lot of selfishness in the goals and in the motivations. You should be able to rejoice when somebody else is prospering. When their church is growing, man, you should be able to rejoice and praise God. And if it makes you jealous, there's selfishness and envy there. That's not the godly motivation. Amen or oh me. You can look at Joseph. Man, this guy was called of God, and he had a goal. He had three dreams. 
And he had these dreams out there in front of him. And yet, you know what? 17 years old when the first dream came to him. He was 20, let's see, 32 years old, or 30 years old when the first positive thing happened to him. 30 years. 13 years later, everything went downhill, and yet this guy remained faithful. He was in prison, and he was content in prison, and he was serving God and blessing other people in prison, and because of it, God promoted him. And after he became king, basically over the whole land, he was given the authority to do whatever he wanted to. You know what I'd have done? What most of us would have done because self was intact. Man, I'd have taken the armies of Egypt. I'd have gone around and surrounded my brothers and I'd have said, bow the knee. I'd have made that dream come to pass, amen. (laughs) Once I got the power in my hand, I'd have made it come to pass. But you know what? For another seven years of famine and two years of plenty, he didn't do one thing to cause God's dreams, God's visions to come to pass. He was just faithful. He was content doing what God told him to do. And when his brothers came, you know, some people interpret this as he was mean to his brothers. But I saw this thing of Turner Broadcasting, and if you can believe it, Turner Broadcasting put out a story about Joseph. And man, it was good. And the, the way they portrayed it at the end, Joseph had no animosity towards his brother. And the reason he put them through all of this stuff is because those guys had never repented. They were still in the same, they were still the same crooks, the same cons that they ever were. And he knew that for them to ever get straight, they needed to repent. And he just brought them to the place until finally they fell on their face and said, we're guilty before God because we heard our brother cry and we didn't respond to him. And then he revealed himself unto him once they repented. I don't believe that it... I mean, it's inconsistent with Joseph. Joseph is the only guy that never exhibited selfishness that I can think of in the Bible. I mean, this guy was just perfect. He was good. And I don't believe he was just punish, punishing his brethren. He was doing that for a reason. But you can see this, this selflessness in Joseph that when he had the ability to make God's vision come to pass, he still didn't do it. He was waiting on God. He was 100% God-dependent, patient. You can look at David. David, after all of these years, you know, being king, then his own son turned against him, and his own son was out to kill him. And he knew that if he didn't escape the city of Jerusalem, he'd be killed. And as he was leaving, the priest brought out the Ark of the Covenant, and they were going to go with him. And he said, what are you doing? And they said, well, we're taking the Ark of the Covenant with you. And he says, you take it back and put it in its place. And if God is pleased with me and brings me back, I'll come back to the the Ark. And if he isn't pleased with me, then let him do with me what seems good. You know what that is? That's a man who wasn't in it. A selfish man could never let go and say, if it's God's time for me to die, if it's God's time for my ministry to be over, so be it. Selfish man will never do that. Man, if I mean your ministry or your goals or your things are so important that you can't live without it, if you become like that guy's talking about last night that says, I believe I'm going to die if I can't obtain this, I guarantee you something's wrong. It shouldn't be that way. It ought to be that my only goal is really just to love God and to fellowship with Him. And because I'm doing that, God has shown me that this is going to happen and that this is going to happen. And praise God, it will happen because I believe God's Word will come to pass. But you don't have to force it. You don't have to make it happen. People that are driven and forced and stuff, it's selfishness. Godly ambition is motivated totally out of love. It's just love for the Lord. God, you've done so much for me. I want to be obedient. What is it that you want me to do? God tells you what to do and you obey it. And the struggle, the strife is out of it and it's not hard. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. If your yoke isn't easy, if your burden isn't light, it's because you're operating under a carnal type of ambition and goal setting instead of being led by the Lord. Amen? Amen. So the second thing is that, you know, carnal ambition is rooted in discontentment. That's what we've been talking about. People who are driven by carnal ambition are discontent. They make themselves, they purposely force themselves to become discontent with where they are because they feel that as long as I'm content, nothing will motivate me. But you know, when you're led by godly ambition, you don't have to be discontent. You can love where you are, and yet just because of the love of God, it's the love of Christ that compels you to minister to people, not a miserableness and hatred for where you are. Discontentment doesn't have to be the motivating factor, the driving force behind it. And the third thing would be that along with all of this, any time you are selfish, any time you are discontent and driven by those things, 
then one of the things that will always accompany selfish ambition is fear of failure. You'll be afraid of failure. You'll be driven with, oh God, I, what's going to happen? I'll fail. You know, there's a time in my ministry that I had all my board. Dave was on the board then, and I mean, it was so bad. Basically, they were just telling me it's over. Turn out the lights. And, and they they had to tell me to consider all of these things. And you know what? I, as I prayed about it, I kept having these thoughts. But, oh God, I don't want to fail. I, I was struggling with the fear of failure. And the Lord spoke to him, and he says, what were you when I found you? And I said, I was a failure. He says, well, then what have you got to worry about? He says, you are a failure. He says, on your own, you're already a failure. You were a failure when I got you. And says, you know, and he just changed my thinking around. What is a failure? When Peter denied the Lord, Jesus prayed for him, and he says, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. Did you know most of us would have thought, well, that prayer didn't work. But Jesus' prayers worked. I believe that Jesus, when he said, I've prayed for you that your faith fail not, and when you're converted, strengthen your brethren. Apparently, God must define failure a little bit differently than we do, because according to our standards, Peter failed. He denied the Lord three times, and one time used profanity and curses and oaths to swear that I've never seen this man. Most of us would look at that as he blew it, but you know, according to God's standard, he didn't. He didn't fail. See, God looks at the end result. He might have lost a battle, but he didn't lose the war. Peter came back stronger than ever, and God sees the end from the beginning, and God sees things differently than we do. You know, I've, I've pastored three little churches, and they never succeeded according to man's standards. I mean, they were terrible. Man, it was a struggle. But, you know, I look back, and I don't think I was ever called a pastor. That I hate to say it because it looks like I just God used these people as expendable for me, but... I didn't go through Bible college. That was my Bible college. That was my training. I went through the school of hard knocks, and those people were who I practiced on. <laughs> Six years pastoring churches. And, you know, if you just look at it from a pastor's standpoint, I was a failure. But it's because I was never really called a pastor. That's just the way that I got my training. It's where I learned. And, man, when I left there and started doing what I'm doing, God began to prosper, and things began to work. So it wasn't a failure. Some people could look at it as a failure, but I don't think it was a failure. It was a learning time. I learned through it. God used it in my life. Amen? People that are driven by fear of failure are people that are still in this selfish thing, thinking that their net worth is tied to their accomplishments. They're having to prove to things. You know, when I first got started in the ministry, I used to argue with people a lot more than I do now. People would come up and they'd say, I don't agree with what you're saying. Man, I'd get in their face. I'd have to win that argument. And I thought I was defending the word, but you know, in reality, what I was doing, I was trying to convince myself. <laughs> Amen. If this person could out-talk me, I wasn't sure that what I was believing was better than what they was believing. So I'd have to argue with them and win the argument. Now it's come to a place I know what I believe. God's shown me some things, and if you don't agree with it, well, it's your problem. I might talk to you if I think that it'll help you, but I don't have to talk to you to help me. Anybody get that? I remember that this guy in Vietnam came into one of my Bible studies and he was an atheist and he just ridiculed me. I didn't know very much of the word and he made a fool of me. I mean the Bible study, the people that were there for positive reasons laughed at me and walked out laughing because, I mean, he just flat out talked me. And all I could do was come back. This guy just said, I don't know the answer to that, but I said, I know this. There's got to be a God because he's, I'm talking to him. I said, I fellowship with him today. I said, I, I just started telling miracles and things that happened. And he just ridiculed me. How do you know this is true? The whole Bible study left. And I was sitting there just thinking, God, didn't do very good on this one. Thinking about what could I have done. And within 30 minutes, that guy was back. And he, he came into the library and just sat down and looked like he was reading a book. And I started praying, oh, God, give me another chance. And this guy came over to me. And he says, boy, I want what you've got. And I said, you do? <laughs> And he said, my whole life is based on an argument. He says, I'm an intellectual. And he says, I made a fool of you. I out-talked you. I out-argued you. He says, if somebody would have done that to me, I'd have killed myself because I don't have anything to stand on but my intellect. And he says, I made a fool of you. And you still believe something. And I can tell that it's real in your life, even though you can't understand it. He says, I want that. Got to lead him to the Lord. Amen. Got to see him born again. 
You know what? You can get to a place that, praise God, your security isn't in out-talking somebody, proving yourself, demonstrating something, but man, you know who you are, and I believe that that's the way that godly ambition is. You, you're going to do something because you believe that this is what God wants you to do, and you love Him so much, you're wanting to please Him, you'll do anything for the Lord, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it comes to pass or doesn't come to pass. You aren't in it for yourself. You don't have to do it to prove to yourself or to anybody else. You know, the truth is, lots of times we are really trying to prove ourselves to other people. Look over in the fourth chapter of the book of Luke. And let me, I'm going to stop on this third point for a minute and share something with you. But in Luke chapter 4, this is the temptation of Jesus. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, but when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answering, answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil taketh him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All his power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from thence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is written, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You know, there's a lot of things could be said about this, but I think that one of the most subtle things, again, you know, the Scripture talks about the subtlety of the serpent, how he deceived Eve through the simplicity. We sometimes really miss what the real temptation was. I don't think the real temptation for Jesus was to turn a stone into bread or to cast himself off a temple. You know what the strongest part of all of this temptation was? Satan said, If you're the Son of God. Like I was saying last night, Jesus was God in His Spirit, but His physical mind grew, had to be taught how to speak, had to, had to be taught how to walk and to do all of these things. Jesus perceived He was the Son of God by faith. And He had the witness of the Spirit. And I'm sure that when man, his mother told him the story about the virgin birth and the wise man and the angels singing and the shepherds coming, I'm sure the Holy Ghost bore witness in his heart. I'm sure that the Scripture spoke to him. There were some pretty powerful ways I'm sure that God confirmed it. But in the final results, Jesus accepted that He was the Son of God by faith. When the audible voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, hear Him. Jesus said, This voice did not come for my sake, but for your sake. In other words, Jesus was saying, I didn't need it. I already believed. I didn't need to hear anything audibly. This came for you so that you could believe. Jesus knew who He was because of faith. And if all this was was Satan expressing his doubts and saying, if you're the Son of God, well, then that degrades Satan to such a low realm that it means he wasn't very much of a tempter, wasn't very much of a temptation. If all he was doing was expressing his doubts, if you're the Son of God, well, then that just makes this useless. I guarantee you, Satan was there in all of his glory and power and splendor. He was using his most subtle temptation. And you know what he was doing? He was trying to get Jesus to do something to prove to the devil and to himself that he truly was God. Use your power and show a miracle. Man, that's awesome. And did you know what? It was, it was faith for Jesus not to succumb to that. I believe that sometimes the way that we do things, it's really out of our own insecurity. We're trying to prove to other people that, praise God, we're blessed and anointed. We're trying to prove it to ourselves. And it all comes back to this thing that our ambition is selfish. Our net worth is tied up in that. Jesus knew who he was by faith, and he didn't have to prove it to the devil or to anybody else. He didn't succumb to any of these things. What would have been wrong with turning a stone into bread? Really nothing, I don't think, except that it would have been a response to unbelief. It would have been him trying to prove himself. It would have been an 
exaltation of self, which was not what he came to do. He came to humble himself and to give his life for other people. Amen? I tell you what, carnal ambition is really different than that. Carnal ambition takes every opportunity to step on top of somebody, to compare yourself with others. Every time you get a chance, you love to find somebody who's doing worse than you are and compare yourself and feel good about it, that, man, I'm arriving. I'm making progress. That's the way carnal ambition is. Godly ambition doesn't have that in it. Fear of failure doesn't work. First John 4, 18 says, Perfect love casts out fear. He who fears is not made perfect in love, but perfect kind of love casts out fear because fear has torment. You know, many of us are tormented in our relationship with the Lord because we haven't become just satisfied and content with what we've got. We're motivated out of, oh God, I've got to be somebody. I've got to do something for you and amount to something. I want you to know God's pleased with you because of what He's done in your life, not because of what you've done for Him. It's not you being so lovely. It's God who is love. Amen. Fear of failure should not be a motivating factor. It shouldn't even be a factor in a believer's life if you're walking in God's kind of love. God's kind of love is really different. It's, it's the motivation instead of fear of failure, instead of selfishness and exalting yourself and being discontent and I'm so miserable, I've got to be something different before I can be happy. Well, those are major, major differences. And fourth thing in this list of uh, things that are different between godly ambition and carnal ambition is uh, that I believe that there's no peace when you're operating in a carnal ambition. You won't allow yourself to rest and to enjoy anything. I mentioned some of that last night, but people who are driven by this selfishness and ambition and discontentment and stuff, they never just have peace. They never enjoy where they are. And yet peace should be one of the distinguishing characteristics of a true believer. A peace that passes understanding. A peace that isn't based on... See, uh, carnal ambition, the only time a person ever feels peace is when they've hit some goal and, the, and they have attained some level. Then they have joy and then they have peace. But it's short-lived because they're instantly setting other goals and they're heading towards the next step. But you know what? A true believer ought to walk in peace. Man, we ought to have peace, a peace that passes understanding. The scripture says in Isaiah 57, I believe it's verse 21, it says, There is no peace, saith my God to the wicked. We, that not only applies to an unbeliever, but you know what? If a believer is acting wickedly, <laughs> operating in selfishness, there won't be any peace. Man, if we're without peace in our life, it's not because God has taken his peace back, and it's not because God didn't give us peace. He has given us perfect peace. But it's just because we've gotten over into selfishness. We're doing all of these things. We're breeding on discontentment. Makes us fearful. Man, when you're operating in fear, there is no peace in that. We need to get out of that. Amen? Man, we have peace because we're justified by grace, is what Romans chapter 5, verse 1 says. It's the grace of God. You'll find out that a person who's operating in carnal ambition is a person who is driven by legalism, law, performance mentality. They aren't thinking about what God has done for them, but their whole focus is on what they must do for God. Man, instead of coming from victory, they're always trying to head to victory. But the truth is we're coming from, from victory. We aren't headed to one. I'm not trying to get healed. I've already been healed. Satan tries to make me sick every once in a while, and so I have to fight him over it. I'm fighting because I have been healed. I'm not fighting to get healed. I'm not fighting to get prosperous. I am prosperous, and Satan tries to block and hinder me from receiving what God has given me. I'm resting in that. I'm not into myself. Amen? It's awesome. Well, I said there's six things. I forgot what the fifth one was. Impatient. You know what? A person who's operating in carnal ambition is impatient. Man, they just, they are, they're consumed with this. They can't stand the delays. They get upset. They'll do anything. They'll stab people in the back. Again, look at Joseph. Joseph was the guy, the epitome of patience. 27 years after he received his vision, before he saw it come to pass. And this guy was just faithful. Faithful. Amen. Awesome.
I tell you, impatience is a sign, I believe, of operating in the flesh and operating out of carnal ambition. If you're impatient to see the goals that God has given you, and I mean if you, if you can't abide by it, and there's a difference in having a longing for something and desiring it and then being impatient to where you're discontent, you're dissatisfied, you're depressed, you're discouraged, you're angry, you're bitter. hope everybody understands the difference here. But when you're impatient to the point that you can't wait and stuff, I believe it's a sure sign of being in the flesh. It's carnal ambition instead of godly ambition that's driving you. Amen or oh me. Amen. And then the last thing, number six, is that I believe that a person operating under carnal ambition is it drives, it drives you. It's controlling you instead of you controlling it. Ambition in a godly sense is a useful thing. You set these goals just as a way of checking to see where you are and to you know, you, you write down the vision and make it plain so that you can keep it in front of you and it becomes a positive motivation. But a person that's driven by carnal ambition, I mean the, the ambition is driving them. They will literally be forced to do things. They'll kill people because of their own ambition. They'll lie. They'll steal. They'll compromise their convictions. You know, a person who is truly driven by godly ambition, they don't have to compromise a thing because they aren't driven by it. it. It's not the important thing. Whether they obtain it or not, it isn't for them. They don't have to do it to be a success. But you'll find out that, man, a person who is driven by carnal ambition is a person that will compromise their convictions. They'll, they'll become less than what they're supposed to be to be able to obtain it. I tell you, in our ministry, there's certain standards I've set that, you know, it's, it, it'd be wrong for me to violate those. It may not be wrong for you at all. There's nothing wrong with uh, certain things. It's just decisions that I've made. Yeah, I've made some decisions, and I'm going to make tapes available to people free of charge. And I've had people come to me by the hundreds, by the thousands, telling me, well, time's over. You've done your bit. I remember Vanetta Copeland came to me one time, and she said, Andrew, God's blessed you. And you've given away these tapes. But now, if you ever expect to grow, you've got to start selling those tapes. Started telling me about how much money Kenneth made all of all of his tapes. And she says, you're just in the flesh. You're operating carnally. You get rid of that. And you know what? I guarantee you, I've been pressured lots of times. There's been lots of times when my bills were bigger than my income. But, you know, I made some commitments. For you, it's nothing wrong with selling. But for me, it's just a commitment that I've made. And because of it, I've been tempted lots of times to compromise. I've been offered opportunities to do certain things if I would just do things differently. I had a team of guys sitting around the table one time. They just raised $22 million for Swagger. And they said, we'll guarantee you $2 million if you'll let us put out a mailing. That'll be your profit, $2 million. And I said, oh man, that sounds awesome. I thought it's pretty good. And I said, what do I have to do? And they said, and they started telling me, and I said, guys, those are lies. I said, I won't treat people that way. I won't manipulate them. I won't do that. And these guys said, you're crazy. And I said, well, I'm crazy then. And I kicked them all out. And I said, man, I don't want any part of you. And I walked away from them. You know what? I could have compromised my convictions. But what would I have been if I compromised the very things that God has given me that have made me who I am and that put me in the ministry and the reason he called me? What if I compromised those things to obtain a goal? Y'all ever see uh, Chariots of Fire? And I remember that they were in there and all these people were gr grilling Eric Little and trying to get him to compromise. And after he left and he won because he wouldn't compromise his convictions, one of them says, boy, I thought he had us. And the other one said, he did have us. <laughs> and then this guy said, you know, we tried to get him to violate his convictions and it's his convictions that made him the winner and the competitor that he was. Says if we would have got him to change, he would have lost the edge that made him the winner. And yet, how many times does Satan try and get us to compromise and obtain goals? We're driven by ambition, and those goals control us and get us to compromise and violate our own standards. What good is it if you obtain a goal and, and have to compromise and become less than what God wanted you to be to get there? It's not worth it. Carnal ambition will drive you. It'll control you instead of you controlling it. But when it's a godly ambition, when it's a goal that God has set, you can be patient, you can wait, and it's not controlling you. You're controlling it. Amen? I thought many a time, I could go back to pouring semen. I can still love God, and God would still love me. I'd have more time for Jamie. We'd have a better relationship. 
Man, I'd have a lot more time to study and pray and seek the Lord. It wouldn't be so bad. Amen. I wouldn't fall apart if I was out of the ministry and pouring cement. I loved God at one time doing that. I can do it again. Praise God. You don't have to be driven by your goals and driven by ambition. There's nothing wrong with goals. Again, there's a balance to this, and I'm not presenting the other side. Hopefully these guys will balance my imbalance. Amen. But I'm saying that we have been too driven by carnal, selfish ambition. And brothers and sisters, that's not the way that God intended it to be. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. What I want to do here is just use the fruit of the Spirit as kind of like a thermometer. You know, you use a thermometer to check your temperature to see how you are. I believe Galatians 5, 22, it's the fruit of the Spirit. And if you are walking in the Spirit, the Spirit is not into carnal ambition. It's not selfish. It's not impatient. It's not operating in fear of failure. You don't have to prove your worth to somebody when you're in the Spirit. So if we are flowing in the Spirit, then this should be the products that are in our life. Galatians 5.22 says that the fruit of the Spirit, notice it's the word fruit. I know that some people say, well, fruit can be plural too. Like, what kind of fruit did you eat today? You don't say, what kind of fruits did you eat? So fruit can be a plural word, but the next, it says the fruit of the Spirit is. Fruit may be plural, but is is singular, amen. In other words, there's nine things listed, but they are not nine different fruit of the Spirit. It's all one fruit, and it just manifests itself in nine different ways. Just like light can be broken up by a prism and put into all of the different spectrums, the Spirit doesn't produce just love in some people and joy in others, and some people have peace and others are gentle in this, but I'm a prophet motivation, and so that justifies me being mean and angry and brutal to people and on and on. No, the fruit of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit produces all of these things in all people all of the time, and if you aren't experiencing them, it's because you aren't releasing and enjoying what God has given, not because God's not giving it. You know, if you're walking in the Spirit then these things will be manifest and prevalent in your life. And it's just like a barometer for finding out, are you really content in the Lord? If you are, the Holy Spirit will be flowing through you with love. And, you know, I need to define this a little bit because most of the time when we read these things, we apply it to how we should be treating other people. And there is certainly that application. But, you know, actually I believe that it's more appropriate instead of thinking about that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and so we look around and say, am I loving people properly and evaluate ourselves? No, I think what it's talking about is, are you understanding God's love for you? Are you letting God's love for you flow properly? Are you basking in God's love, or are you out here working your fingers to the bone trying to get God's love? You know, I think it was a year ago here, I can't remember where it was, but I called somebody out and ministered to them through a word of knowledge about returning to their first love. Look over in uh, Revelation chapter 2 at that passage. This is the Lord Jesus speaking to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And in verse 2, Revelation 2, 2, it says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. You know, these are some pretty strong compliments. Man, this pastor, and it's possible that this was talking about Timothy. He was the first bishop of the church at Ephesus. I don't know if this was him, but it's certainly him or one of his uh, people that came after him. This is somebody that was effective as a minister. Man, they didn't put up with any nonsense. The people who claimed to be apostles, they weren't swayed by that. They judged them. He wasn't afraid of people. He stood in the face of adversity. He had labored. He had had patience. He had done everything except in verse 4. It says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. And you know when you hear this, this is not a positive scripture to most people. Most people, this is, oh no, I'm not loving God the way I should, and here I am being ragged on again. I never have loved God, and it's, it's a really negative scripture to most people. You know what I believe this is talking about? It's not talking about that you aren't loving God, and you aren't loving people the way that you once did. I believe what he's saying is, you've gotten away from 
how much I love you. You've left that freshness of how it was when I first loved you and you're now into trying to earn my love. Instead of just enjoying my love for you, unconditional love, you're out here trying to earn it and do something that's already been given to you. It's not talking about how we love God and other people. It's talking about how we first had the revelation of how much God loved us. You know, this is a sure sign to me of whether we're in the flesh or in the spirit. It's a sure sign of whether we're content or discontent. It's not our level of love for other people. But how are you feeling about God's love for you? Man, are you basking in God's love for you and thinking about how much God loves you? Or have you gotten totally off the track to where, man, you just feel like God's, I'm dissatisfied with myself. I don't like myself. How could God like me? That's the way that you're feeling. You have left your first love. Not your first love for God, but man, His first love for you. You've left that understanding of how God commended His love towards you and that why you were yet a sinner. He loved you. And then after we get started by grace, then we move over into a realm of, oh God, you loved me when I was a sinner going to hell, but now I've got to be the greatest pastor in the city for you to be pleased with me. I've got to obtain every one of these goals or you can't stomach me anymore. Man, God loved you when you hadn't done anything good. And you know what? We need to be walking in that same kind of love all of the time. If you ever get to where you tie God's love for you to your performance, then I believe that, man, you are headed for a crash and burn. And if you're one of the great ones, you might perform better than I do. You might last for a few years, but I can guarantee you, every one of us is going to crash and burn sooner or later. When I started out ministering, I used to go into rescue centers and into nursing homes. And you know what? Those people in nursing homes, some of them were the movers and shakers of their day. I mean, the most popular, the society people. And yet they came to an end of their usefulness. If your worth is tied to what you can accomplish, you might be one of those that can last for 30 or 40 years, but sooner or later, every one of you is going to get to a place to where you aren't accomplishing something. And if your net worth and your value, your self-esteem is tied to what you've done, it's going to come crashing down around your head. And that's not the way that Paul went out. Paul said, I've finished my course. I've run the race. And man, he was, he was rejoicing in the Lord. And yet he said, I haven't obtained. He said, I haven't done everything right, but Paul was pressing towards Mark. You know, when we take our kids and, and they have low self-esteem, when they're shy and when they're bashful, one of the things we'll do is try and find something that they can do, usually in sports or get them into you know, playing the piano or doing something good. And when they find something that they can do good, we just heap praise on them, build their self-esteem. And, you know, that's not totally wrong. Again, there's a balance to this. There's a balance to everything I'm saying here. It's not totally wrong, but if that's all we do, we're setting them up for failure because, again, those people may, you know, they may go out and become a football star and be the most popular play person in the world at the moment. But usually by 30 or 35, you're washed up. And you know what happens to those people? After they peak and after their success is over with, how do you adjust? How do you go back to being normal? What's your next goal? What's the next thing? Is all of your self-worth tied up in who you used to be, not in who you are? And you find out that a lot of football stars, uh, athletic people, superstars, celebrities, uh, all of these people, man, they become drug addicts, dopers. They have divorced, multiple divorces. You know why? One of the reasons is because they felt good about themselves and they were satisfied and pleased as long as their performance was up. But eventually it's going to peak for everybody. You're going to go through peaks and valleys in your performance. There's going to be times that you're more effective than others. And I guarantee you, if your ambition is wrong, if it's carnal instead of godly, if you aren't just satisfied with what Jesus has done, if you're finding your self-worth in your accomplishments, you are going to go through ups and downs. The Christian life doesn't have to be like this, mountaintops and valleys. It says Jesus came to lower the mountains and to exalt the valleys. And if you do that, then that means that it's smooth sailing, amen. The Christian life should be a constant grade upward, but it shouldn't be like this, amen. And you can do that if you find your contentment and your fulfillment and your worth in the Lord and not in just the things that you're doing. And see, that's, that's the freshness. That's the first love. That's the thing that turns you on at first. You didn't have a thing to offer the Lord. We sang this song, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. 
And man, that's what made God's love so fresh is because you knew that he loved you when you were an absolute jerk headed to hell. Man, you didn't have anything going for you. You had nothing on your credit. There was nothing over here on your side. And yet God loved you. Man, that was awesome. And that's the reason you had so much excitement and love and joy. But now that we're ministers and now that we've done all of these things, God loves me because of all the things that I've done and because how important I am. And because, God, look at, look at how important I am. Look at all the people I'm touching. You ever get into that mode, and I guarantee you, you'll lose your first love. You'll start tying God's love and acceptance of you and blessing on you to all the great things that you've done. Man, we need to all go back and just remind ourselves that God loves us because he's lovely, not because we're lovely. Amen? We need to go back to our first love. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And you know what? If you're walking... In that kind of love, man, if you're just thinking about how much God loves you, then I'd say that you're well on your way. You're walking in satisfaction. You're pleased with what God has done. But most of us only find satisfaction when we're pleased with what we've done, and that's just not very often. Amen? <laughs> Truth is, we just don't do a lot to be pleased with what we've done. You could always do more. I remember I first got turned on to the Lord before I really understood all this grace. Man, I was going to fast and pray, and I spent one entire day reading the Word. I read all of the New Testament except the book of Matthew in one day, 16 hours reading the Bible. And you know what? I was really excited. I was pleased, satisfied, because I'd done something. And as I was praying and telling the Lord, oh, God, it was sure nice that I read 16 hours today. You know, the devil brought to my mind, says, you were awake 17 hours. You wasted an hour. And I actually wound up being discouraged and depressed because I didn't do enough. You can never do enough. You'll never do enough. Some of you are thinking, I just need to be more diligent. You'll never be diligent enough. Instead of being pleased because you finally got all your ducks in a row, just be pleased that God loves you and he knew who you were before he saved you. When he called you to the ministry, he knew who you were, and he knew what kind of failures you had made, and he still had faith in you and called you. And man, that's what you ought to be rejoicing in. You need to be proclaiming his faithfulness and his goodness, not yours. You need to be rejoicing in how good God is to you, not how good you are to God. Man, there's freedom and liberty in that. Hallelujah. The devil can come to me and just tell me what a jerk I am, and instead of arguing with him, I say, guilty. <laughs> Man, you're right. Boy, that means God really is a good God to love me and to use me despite all my problems. Boy, you can't corner somebody like that. Praise God. How are you going to get to somebody who just agree with you? That You know, the Bible says agree with your adversary quickly while you're in the way. So I just agree with him. Man, you're right. I am no good. But God is good. God is a good God. Amen. Well, that's freedom and liberty in there. Thank you, Lord.